Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 120 of The Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about crisis questions. I'm Leslie Watts, here with Certified StoryGrid Editor, Valerie Francis, who is also the author of Fiction for Women. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukral from the Author Marketing Club. Jim has just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. HappyBookReviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.HappyBookReviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. Awesome. Welcome, Valerie. Hello, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you joined me last summer for a couple of episodes and it was really fun and since then we've been to the training in nashville to become absolutely story grid certified story grid editors and so we got to spend more time together and i'm <laughs> excited to have you here on the show thank you and I want to, but before we dive into everything today, I want to say that you're not just an author of fiction for women, but also children, because you write middle grade fiction. Is that right? That's true. Yes. Middle grade fantasy and also women's fiction. That's right. Awesome. And so if listeners want to find out more about you, they can go to ValerieFrancis.ca and that's V-A-L-E-R-I-E. F-R-A-N-C-I-S dot C-A. That's right. Awesome. So I want to dive right in because we have a great discussion coming, I think. Do you have a quote for us this week? I do. And it's from uh, Robert McKee. And he says, the dilemma confronts the protagonist who, when face to face with the most powerful forces of antagonism in his life, must make a decision to take one action or another in a last effort to achieve his object of desire. Wow, that sounds pretty serious. <laughs> it is. It is. And that's what makes stories so great. You know, that's the type of thing that gets us at the edge of our seat and wondering what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. And it's also the thing, right? I mean, for me, decisions are can be tricky right? You can get caught up. There's the whole, um, the story of the Rubicon crossing the Rubicon and there are studies about how the moment before you decide is like the most painful moment of the whole process. Um, and, and stuff. So it's really, and, and we're faced with making decisions all the time. That's right. So, and it's it's interesting that you use that example actually, because uh, crossing the Rubicon is the name of one of my books. Oh. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it's exactly, that's exactly it. That's exactly what crossing the Rubicon means. It's, it's, it's a crisis question. Do I cross the river or not? Because the consequences are dire. Right. Yes. 
So and of that's course, a, Caesar did cross the Rubicon. He did. <laughs> he totally did. So, okay. So that will kind of whet our appetites to think about while we dive into the submission. This week, we have an excerpt from Lock and Key, which is book one of the Essence Ribbon Trilogy by Emily Bowie. This is not yet published. She is calling this a fantasy. And she was aiming for about 100,000 words when she was working on this. And this particular scene is from the middle of the beginning hook. So it's not the first scene. It's not like smack in the middle of the book. And it's not at the end. But it's kind of in that. Um, in that first probably 25% of the story. And there is some violence in this, uh, in this excerpt. Okay, I'm going to read the submission today. So thank you, Emily. And we have The Essence, Riven Trilogy, Book One, Lock and Key. When Cyrene's flats touched the road, a burst of energy jolted her into a run. She fled down the road with moonlight to guide her, wild exhilaration pumping through her veins, flushing out all of the other emotions. She was going to touch the ocean. Before they locked me away forever, the pawn in a royal game, she thought. The stairs descending the towering cliffs were far steeper and less stable than they looked from her tower bedroom. She clutched the rope railing and focused on one stair at a time. With every step, the massive granite castle atop the island faded further from view. Heart racing, chest tight, she clutched the rope railing and focused on one step at a time. The glittering beach far below swam in her vision. When her feet finally touched sand, Cyrene bolted for the sea, tossing her flats off in relieved delight. The first rush of icy water shocked her, but she stayed put, embracing the rhythm of the tide. Seawater lapped at her legs and she clutched her night skirts and cloak out of their reach. She closed her eyes and inhaled thick, salty night air. Each frigid wave swirled sand between her bare toes. Her evening flats lay safe on the beach behind her. She shivered with the invigoration of freedom. Adrenaline roiled, shaping a tornado of her emotions. Fury, disappointment, and frustration swirled together with fear and longing, amplified with every rush of tide. Her father's voice echoed in her mind. The matter is settled. Then, without warning, she burst into wild, ragged sobs. The wind took her tears as well as her breath. Her body racked against a world she didn't understand. Naya's world does not bend to your will. 
you bend to it. But was this really what the goddess intended? What did I do wrong? A small voice questioned in the back of her mind. Are you punishing me? The tiny thought deflated both her exhilaration and her despair. She stumbled backward, thoroughly numb, and hoisted herself with difficulty onto a nearby boulder. The massive rock was cold and rough to the touch. Rushing tidewater repeatedly broke against its sides. Cyrene tucked her cloak tightly under her feet, partially to protect her flesh from the rock's surface and partially to anchor the fabric against the wind. Free of its usual constraints, her thin brown hair danced in the breeze. She gathered it gently, hugged her knees, and stared blankly into the waves. After a few moments, she used her free hand to withdraw a tiny key on a chain from underneath the neckline of her bodice. The trinket's elaborate leaf carvings and small emerald stone sparkled. The metal's unnatural warmth pulsed against her palm. She flashed a smile that immediately evaporated in misery. Her forehead tingled at the memory of Gideon's lips grazing her skin, the intensity of his gaze. Longing engulfed her other emotions. Only you have the key to my heart. You always have, he had said. Agony clawed at her heart. Why, she begged the water goddess Naya, why did you send him? After four years, he was finally here, right on the eve of her betrothal to Prince Vodnik. Are you just trying to show me what I can't have? She felt guilty as soon as, she, as, soon as the thought formed in her mind. I'm sorry, she whispered aloud. Of course, Naya wasn't taunting her. It was childish of her to even think so. This was either a punishment or a test. Cyrene blinked up at the full moon, gra grandmother to all, and sole witness to her first ever rebellion. Second rebellion. The realization resounded, and the next thought rolled forth unfettered. Remember how well it ended last time? Hot guilt swept up from her stomach to her face, burning away her tears despite the cold numbness of her feet. Of course this is a test, she chided herself, wiping her face with her cloak sleeve. How many times had she read Naya's scroll of salacity, or even the scroll of envy? She had that, she had that one memorized. Cyrene shifted on the rock, her father's face swam into view, and she had to swallow threatening, guilty bile. She knew there was little her father could do about the marriage without dishonoring himself and their entire family. She knew this, and yet she had pushed anyway. The gravity of the situation crashed with such ferocity that her ears rang. Suddenly frantic, 
Cyrene scrambled to her feet. If anyone spotted her on the beach, the scandal would be irreparable. She saw Maya's face, her parents' faces. If she was disgraced, they would be too. She needed to return to the castle immediately. Cyrene whipped around to face the rickety cliff steps, her intentions set. She slipped slightly on the rock surface, but managed to stay upright. Then every one of her nerves froze in terror. Three figures slinked out of the cliff's shadows. The druid men, dark in the night, approached her like cats stalking prey. She struggled to breathe from paralyzed lungs. Memories surged. She was a child again, the common man's hand on her wrist. Remember how well it had ended last time. Her strangled breath burst forth and she began to hyperventilate. Desperately, she searched for an escape. There was nowhere to go. The men closed in on the rock. The glint of a knife shocked her into reaction. Cyrene shrieked and scrambled to get off the rock, but the hem of her cloak was too long, the rock too slippery. She tripped and fell. Strong arms caught her and tossed her backwards against the boulder. The world flashed black. The cold of the tide soaking through her dress prodded her back to consciousness. Her eyes watered with fear and pain. Her lungs rejected breath. One of the men hovered over her, his long, thin, black hair whipped in the wind, his dark green eyes fixed on her chest. Cyrene twisted to get up, but her head spun too much for balance. She caught sight of her beige flats bobbing in the receding tide and flailed to reach them. Without shoes, she couldn't escape. The druid grabbed her shoulder and forced her onto her back. She locked gaze with his dark-lined face and screamed. Blood sprayed everywhere. Bewildered, Cyrene blinked it out of her eyes. She rolled out of the way just as the man fell to his knees, an arrow sprouting from his chest. He looked down at it in shock as the life faded from his eyes. Cyrene's body screamed to run, but her mind fixated on the horror in front of her, the blood seeping into the ocean tide that she lay in. A hand entered her vision, outstretched to help her up. Wildly, Cyrene expected the hero to be Gideon, but she glanced up at a much smaller person, another druid. His emerald eyes shocked her, like a vision from another time. It was the young druid from the festival dance floor. He pulled her to her feet with surprising strength. She nearly toppled with the dizzy change in height. He held her steady, searching her with concern. His hair was soaked with sweat, his gaze piercing. As he looked her up and down, his face flashed with a realization she didn't understand, 
and he dropped her. Without his support, she staggered against the boulder. The young druid stepped closer, curiosity on his face. He reached forward, but before he could touch her, whipped around. She landed in the sand when he pushed her, barely catching herself. The other two druids had returned from their momentary retreat. Her rescuer leapt onto the boulder, drawing his bow gracefully. Looking down from his perch with a strange, pained expression, he snapped, Get out of here! Staggering to her feet, Cyrene obeyed. She fled, racing the extensive cliff steps with horror-fueled purpose. She could hear the druids shouting at one another, but couldn't focus to make out their words. Her heart raced, her body ached, her head spun dangerously. She didn't slow until she reached the castle's front gate. The guard on duty gaped and rushed to let her in. Safely in the courtyard, Cyrene gaped at her bloodied feet. She couldn't remember losing her flats. She reached up to touch her aching skull. Blackness swept forward when her hand came back caked in blood. The guard caught her as she fainted. All right. So that is our submission for today. And just to give you a little background, we have this, again, this is from the beginning of the middle hook. And the book is following Cade, who we think is the character, the, the savior in this scene. And Cyrene, and Cyrene, who's a water nymph, and he's an earth druid. So Cade is, has been sent to track down that key that Cyrene was admiring, that, uh, that Gideon had given to her. And so she's in, you know, we've got the backdrop of the conflict, the love triangle, essentially, um, and then there's some mystery about this key and what it, you know, what it, uh, what it means and that. So, uh, I thought we would start by you know, analyzing the scene and looking at it from, you know, according to those questions that we've talked about before we talked last week, we used these questions to kind of get into the scene and see what's working and what could be improved. Absolutely. So the first question that we look at is what's literally happening in the scene. And right, that's just on the surface. That's right. You know, yeah, quite on a literal level. And that is uh, Cyrene has left the castle. She snuck out of the castle and she's gone to the water. And um, realizing that this could hurt her family, she needs to get back without getting noticed. Yeah, that doesn't work out that well for her. It doesn't, sadly. No. <laughs> Which is so often the case with the characters. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, if she got back unnoticed, we wouldn't have much of a chapter. <laughs> I know, then it would be like, yeah, she just tucked herself into bed and all was well. Um, so then we'll... we'll 
when we turn to the essential action of the scene, then what's that about? I find, um, it, it just before I answer your question there, I find when we're trying to figure out the essential action of a scene, this can be really tricky. The mm -hmm. literal, you know, what the characters are literally doing is pretty easy to figure out because um, it's just step by step what's on the page. Mm -hmm. But the essential action really requires us to get into the skin of the character and get mentally put ourselves in that scene and in that situation. Mm -hmm. So when we do that, it's a lot easier to figure out what's happening. You know, is one character trying to convince a character of another thing or, or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And in this case, um, Cyrene is really trying to come to terms with the situation that she's in. She loves one man, but she has to marry another man for the sake of her family. So it's 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 a coming to terms with her situation, making peace with her situation. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, and what a situation, right? Because it's not just that we have this triangle where she's forced to marry this dude and she loves another. It's like from the context, it seems like Gideon has been gone and then he's just come back. And that's got to be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you know, so there's obviously the love triangle there. But then I'm just I only have this chapter, but I'm wondering, OK, where does Cade fit into this? Mm -hmm. um, so I would be really curious to read on and see what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The key has me very curious as well. Absolutely. So then if we're looking at the life value for this scene, to me, we would focus on Cyrene rather than Cade. Yes, um, she's, I agree. She's the point of view character and, and you know, she, that's where all of the focus is. And so if you were, you know, the, the next question we normally ask is which life value should I highlight in other, you know, where what should I focus on that relates to the bigger story? And it's not quite clear to me from the synopsis and that's not a um, that's not a failing on the part of the author that's just the circumstances of uh, of the podcast and and our format so I wouldn't I don't know exactly how we're moving but to me it's clear like something happens in the scene we do have an actual story event and so you would when deciding how that connects to the bigger story, you know, you would obviously look at whether the character is getting closer to or further from their story goal and the life values that are in play. That's right. I mean, a chapter or a scene, I should say, because <clears throat> a chapter is not always a scene and a scene is not always a chapter. Mm -hmm. But in a scene, your character has to start one way and has to end another way. So there has to be a shift. If there's no change, if there's no turning point, you don't have a scene. So the question then becomes, how does Cyrene start? How is she at the beginning of the scene? Mm -hmm. And how is she at the end? Now, we talked about this a little bit before starting the podcast. And what I came up with was she starts the scene safe. She goes to unsafe in the middle when she's attacked, 
and she returns to safe at the end. So safe, unsafe, safe would be the shift to me that's happening in this scene. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good assessment. And what happens next will kind of reveal more about that and the, the context would right would because maybe the guard raises the alarm or you know we don't know what's going to happen but at least in terms of what's in front of us yeah she she hasn't gained any more clarity about her situation except that she recognized that she was endangering her family by being on the beach um so as you say the 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 main shift seems to be she goes from being safe to being in peril and then she's delivered again to safety so if we were then to turn to the the five commandments of storytelling and look at this from that point of view then what would you say is the inciting incident for this scene I think the inciting incident is when Cyrene realizes that she shouldn't be outside the castle. You know, there's, um, I'm just looking for it here now. Um, it says the gravity of the situation crashed with such ferocity that her ears rang suddenly frantic. Cyrene scrambled to her feet. If anyone spotted her on the beach, the scandal would be irreparable to me. That's the inciting incident. Yeah. It's Cause she's just, I mean, there, you know, like you can look at these lo scenes lots of different ways, but she's kind of, she, she opens the scene and she's mulling things over. And when you can look for particular landmarks in within the scene to help you kind of figure out where you are. But so she's mulling things over, but there's no real um, progressive complication. Like there's not a desire that, where there's an obstacle other than in the bigger story, but within the scene until she has that, Oh gosh, what am I doing? I'm, you know, I'm endangering everyone by being here like that. From that point, there's a desire or a goal that arises within the scene that she has to get back to the castle, back inside the castle before somebody figures out, or sees her. And isn't this interesting? Um, this is just, uh, as, as you were talking, this idea came to my mind. So we've identified the inciting incident as Cyrene recognizing that she shouldn't be there, but the essential action of the scene we have identified is all the information up to that point. So mm. that is a quandary. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at this now from from my editor's eyes and I'm thinking, OK, if if the essential action is Cyrene coming to terms, why are we saying like why? Because I, I, I firmly agree that the inciting incident is her realizing that she shouldn't be there. Right. So. Then. That that could be, um, you know, part of. I don't want to say confusion because that that's not the right word I'm looking for. Uh, part of the there's a lot going the, on. Yeah, there's part. Yeah, there's there's um, uh, you know if we had yeah there's two different things going on here and I'm just trying to figure out okay if 
th those two things in my mind are not working together now. And for some reason, they worked before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> and now that we're recording the podcast, I'm questioning that because, um, uh, you know, if if um, Emily were my client, I would ask her about this and, and I'd have her here in a live conversation with me. So I'd be able to talk to her a little bit about more about that and why she's got this in there and what her intent of the scene is maybe mm -hmm. her intent is not what we think it is right yeah right which is what yes exactly it's so vital for us as editors to talk with the author about what they're you know what they're trying to accomplish and then we look at the scene or we look at the scene first find out what the author is trying to accomplish and then from there, we can say, okay, you've ticked these boxes on what you're trying to accomplish, and these are the things that need some work. So we don't have Emily's precise intention. But what we can see is that, you know, in the context of this story, that this is a moment when Cyrene is kind of, Right. She is trying to come to terms with all the things going on, but we might, as you say, want to revise that the essential action and talk about the, you know, the essential, what's the essential action? Cyrene is trying yeah. to get back to the castle without being seen. Yeah. You know, and if, if the author was here with me, I'd say, okay, what's the point of this? Um, what's the point of this scene? Mm -hmm. Where does it fit in the context of the global story? Mm -hmm. And what needs to happen in this scene to move the plot along? Right. Um, and, and then we'd have that answer. So um, since we don't have her here, um, that is just something that I would raise for writers to think about um, when they're doing an analysis of their own work is where's the inciting incident? How does it relate to the essential action, which is the whole point of the scene and how the scene moves the story forward mm -hmm. if it relates great if it doesn't you might want to have another look at it right right I mean it almost seems to me like that that this that there's the backdrop of all of this stuff happening to her you know the, mm -hmm. the stuff that's on her mind as she goes walking on the beach and then right she has the realization and that the this turning point or that the, this that this event that this scene could be a turning point in the story where she either gets into trouble or um or something you know something that there are consequences that are going to flow from this that will impact the love triangle that's right and I know this has been identified as a fantasy, um, but, you know, there's um, clearly something to do with the key here. This is important. But there's also a love story in here as a subplot. Mm -hmm. I presume it's a subplot. And mm -hmm. then, you know, uh, the an action adventure would be the, the global genre. And, of course, fantasy is a, is a setting. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that as a criticism at all because I love fantasy. It's my favorite genre, I have to say. So I was really excited to get this uh, when you sent this one to me. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's okay then in, in a scene where we've got 
the first part of the scene of Cyrene thinking about and coming to terms with the her marriage situation because that speaks to the love story part mm-hmm. of of the global story mm-hmm. and then perhaps the attack when the druids attack her that could then speak to the action part of the story right you know what i mean yeah and, and that that's perfectly fine sure. um and we're sort of talking in in big concepts here because we don't have the author and we don't have anything more than these five pages but so these are ideas that we're throwing out for you can for for authors to think about when they're working on their own things yeah yeah so if that's then if we see that when the inciting incident is when she recognizes oh i'm placing everybody in my family in danger by being out here i and i need to get back then what's the progressive complication in the scene three armed druids attack yeah that's a the druid men that's right the druid men dark in the night approached her like cats stalking prey mm-hmm. that's a complication yeah yeah <laughs> that is standing in her way of getting back absolutely yeah so that then we have a and that gets worse right they there's a it's first it's three figures and then there there's a weapon and then they're on her and she's you know she slips and and they have her in their mm-hmm. clutches and mm-hmm. then we have a turning point because right. the, the turning point the little buddy to the progressive complications yeah. um the turning point is when cage shows up yeah and then he says run <laughs> fly yeah, he says, get out of here <laughs> <laughs> yep he tells her to get out of here so then i mean in, most people in that situation would go ahead and run yeah well the the turning point is the is the last thing that happens before the protagonist is faced with a crisis question and i mean that sounds so e- it's so easy to say but when you're writing it sometimes you can think you've written it and it's not there or it's still in your head and other times it just flows out so beautifully onto the page that you've written it and you haven't even realized mm-hmm. those are the best times yeah. <laughs> that happens those are definitely the best times um but i mean that's why we have these checkpoints and and things like the five commandments so that after we've written a draft we can go back and make sure we've we've um, included them all so we've said the turning point is when Cade appears and attacks the men and he tells her to run so that leads then to the crisis question and a crisis question has to be either a best bad choice or an irreconcilable good because sometimes and stories reflect life Mm -hmm. that's the whole point of it and and sometimes in life we're making decisions all the time. Sometimes they're no brainers, right? Mm. Of course you're going to do it. There's not even really a question. Yeah. So that's a decision, but it's not a crisis. So to be a crisis, you have to have, it either has to be, you know, a choice between two bad things or a choice between two good things. So the best bad choice is obviously the two bad ones. So neither one of them necessarily is your, um, your preferred option 
Right. <laughs> but you have to choose one. And right. choosing one means you can't have the other. Or choosing one then then can get you further into the story or and, and it changes your course of action. And the irreconcilable goods is the choice between two good things. And again, when you have one, you choose one, you can't choose the other. So um, irreconcilable goods, you have two great job offers. You can't take them both. And if you, if you choose one, the other one is gone forever. You mm -hmm. cannot, you know, if the first one doesn't work out, you can't go back and say, um, hey, I've changed my mind. I'd now like to try the second job. Too bad. You can only have one. Right. So that would be an example of an irreconcilable good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we mentioned the Rubicon moment um, that, you know, Caesar trying to figure out, like, do do I cross the the river when, you know, no army has gone into Rome before? And like, that's, it's a point. What am I trying to say? It's, it's yeah. once he yeah, makes that's the decision, choice. Yeah. Once he makes that decision, people are going to assume certain things and he's going to have to fight. Yeah. For Caesar crossing the Rubicon, as soon as he puts his foot on Roman soil, that is a declaration of war right. and they're not ready for war, but you know, so, so he can stay on his own side of the river and there will be no war, but then his own career does not advance because mm -hmm. he had, you know, he wanted to be a general. He wanted to be the, you know, the, the top guy. And he was also ordered, I believe, ordered not to cross the Rubicon. So mm -hmm. does he stay on his own side and obey the rules, but not advance his career? Or does he cross the Rubicon, declare war likely advance his career or possibly get beheaded. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that is a great crisis question. Right. <laughs> right. So when we're looking at this scene, I kind of actually, I want to, yeah. So in this scene, her crisis question or, you know, the, the question seems to come you know, does she run or does she not? And that's, you know, it doesn't feel like it has the gravity of a best right. bad choice. Um, right. Because, you know, of course you're going to run. Now, I will say there may be circumstances of which we're not aware from the context. Like it may be that when when there's a druid and a nymph in a situation like this, the nymph is not allowed to go, even if she's told. So there may right. be contextual um, complications that would make this into a more difficult decision. But on its face, it doesn't feel like a best bad choice because it feels more or less like a no brainer. Right. I mean, she is missing her shoes. Um, so that's, you know, a small little flavor to the crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, it's not enough in my opinion to be a real, you know, as a reader of this to keep me on the edge of my seat, because of course she's going to run her feet are going to get cut up. Yeah. But if she stays, she's likely going to get killed. So your feet getting cut up versus being killed is not really an equal choice. Like you said, it's, it's a no brainer. Yeah. She's going to get up and she's going to run. 
Yeah. And if we think about what her goal is for the scene, based on the inciting incident, her goal is to get back to the castle. And, and so this is, you know, it's in line with that completely. So she's not really facing a dilemma about sacrificing something. That's right. And now the, the setup is, is great for this. I think and so too, yeah. Yeah. So what I would suggest is to spend a little time thinking about Sirene's situation. What happens if she stays? What happens if she leaves? Mm -hmm. And there have to be consequences to each of those decisions and consequences. And the best part about this, mm -hmm. this excerpt is from the beginning hook. Mm -hmm. This is a great opportunity to set something up that pays off later in the story. Because once you get to the middle build, that's half the book. And that's often where authors um, flounder. <laughs> they get lost. They lose their way. Because it's, it's, it can be a tough slog to get through the middle build. So when you have situations like this, they can be wonderful opportunities to thicken the plot <laughs> and to start dropping little breadcrumbs for the reader to pick up later on. And maybe there's something about Cade. Um, she recognizes him as being from the dance, the festival dance. Is there something more there that she could bring out something about Cade that could complicate the situation or make, make her choices um, more dramatic mm -hmm. with higher consequences? What does it mean that a Druid has saved her from other Druids? Now, interestingly, <clears throat> and I thought about this as you were speaking. Um, if we look at this scene from Cade's point of view, mm -hmm. then we have a crisis. Yeah. Because, now, I, I, I do think the scene is from um, Cyrene's point of view, but if mm -hmm. we look at it from Cade's point of view, mm -hmm. that's where you have a great crisis question because he is attacking his own kind. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, clearly he's got a good reason. But, when he looks, you know, he helps her and then he looks at her more closely and say, for instance, uh, uh, where did I read that? In the synopsis where his, he's been sent by his boss to retrieve the key. Yeah. Okay. So his crisis, he can get that key off her now. He yeah. can attack her and take that key. Yeah. But then he's got her blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. And clearly he doesn't want the blood on her hands. So his he has got a best bad choice. Either he takes the key and beats up the girl, but pleases his boss, or he, he um, um, denies his the, the, the calling from his boss and lets the girl go because he doesn't want the... So either he gets the key or he's got blood on his hands. You know, he's uh, his boss is going to be angry with him or he's going to have a guilty conscience. Right. Right. Now, there's a crisis. That's a great crisis. Yeah. And I was thinking, too, I mean, this would have this would be an impact for the, you know, the bigger story. Um, it would, you know, change things, I think, from the way the author has the has them playing out. But one way this scene could be, you know, one way Cyrene's choice could become more, more of a best bet choice would be if Cade or one of the other guys had taken the key. 
from yeah. her. And then, yeah. so she has best bed choice. Do I save myself and abandon the key or do I stay, risk my life and my family's reputation, but try to get that key back that was given to me by my love. So, and there's got to be some real significance to losing that key too, because if it's, sure. if it's a sentimental memento, while they are very important in life, mm-hmm. they pale in comparison to life and limb. Right. Right. Like yeah. that's why if, if heaven forbid your house is on fire, you leave the family photos and you get your kids out. Right. Right. It's a no brainer. Yeah. If you, who cares about the family photos? They're, they're mementos and we treasure them. Mm-hmm. when we are not in crisis, right. as soon as we're in crisis, the value is not the same. So there has to be some, if, if you, if you set it up that way, there has to be some real value, some real, uh, dire consequences to ramifications to having lost that key. Right. Right. So after the crisis question, when we're analyzing the scene, we have the climax, which is the decision and here we have, you know, Cyrene decides to go back to the castle and she does so. And then the resolution is, you know, the consequences that flow from that. And here we get just a little bit of that. You know, she does, in fact, make it back to the castle. Um, the, a guard sees her. She sees the blood on her feet and... Um, notices that her head is bloody and she passes out. So I'm sure there will be more that unfolds from that in the next scene um, or, or just beyond this. But that's, I mean, to me, that works as a resolution to mm-hmm. the, you know, to the, to a crisis question about running or not running. And the resolution too is, is another opportunity because sometimes we can pass over the resolution really quickly. And I know we're talking about crisis questions today, but I'm just going <laughs> to throw this in because it came into my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really great opportunity to set up the next chapter or to tease the reader with a little something. Mm-hmm. So the author here has let us know that Cyrene getting caught outside the castle has is bad. She mm-hmm. cannot be caught. Mm-hmm. Well, so she's been caught. Yeah. So not only that, but the guard was very eager to let her in and we know she's safe. Yeah. Well, that's fine. She doesn't, um, the scene doesn't need to continue on beyond that, but if it were me, I would add in a sentence or two or have uh, just to tease the audience that, okay, she's been caught and she knows she's in trouble now or have someone with the guard who saw her. And this could be, uh, I don't know if she's got um, some kind of chaperone or someone who's responsible for her, Mm -hmm. who catches her or, um, you know, some mentor character who catches her and someone, her mother or father or whomever, someone of consequence catches her. So that raises a question in the reader's mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, now what's going to happen to her? Now she's in trouble. And that's the type of thing that gets the reader to turn the page to find out what's going to happen next. Yeah. Because yeah. if all the, if all their questions are answered by the end of the chapter, then they put the book down and there's, you know, then you're competing. Like, 
authors, writers compete with other forms of story. So there's, you know, and, and other devices. So we've got all kinds of stuff, videos on our, our phone through Instagram or Facebook or wherever. We've got Netflix, we got films, um, music videos, there's all kinds of stuff. So when we have a reader interested in our story, well, they're going to read it for a while and then they're going to put it down, go to sleep or whatever. You've got to leave them with a question so that they pick the book back up. So, so this is to me in the resolution is where you can just plant those little seeds. They don't have to be huge. You don't have to belabor the point, but just put something in their mind where they think, huh, well now what's going to happen next? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, there's a question to me in that does running into the guard constitute being caught or not? Um, That's right. But yeah, there's, that could be, you know, perhaps um, like tweaked so that it's a little more like, yeah, because she says safe, she's safely in there. What is it? Let me look, let me find Yeah, safely in there. The guard on duty gaped and rushed to let her in. Safely in the courtyard, Cyrene gaped at her bloodied feet. She couldn't remember losing her flats. She reached up to touch her aching skull. Blackness swept forward when her hand came back caked in blood. The guard caught her as she fainted. Well, maybe the guard doesn't catch her. Yeah. Maybe the guard arrests her or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or so just if you think she's safe, oh, it's not yeah. going to go so well for well, her now. <laughs> and, and what's interesting, too, is like safely in the courtyard could be a conclusion to kind of mislead. Like the next, it might be like, that's her first thought, but maybe her second thought when she wakes up is, oh, no, I've been discovered or, oh, I shouldn't have come this way or something. So there are lots right. of possibilities to really um, to play with reader expectations. Yeah. And, yeah. Still. and there's 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 and there's enough. The story seems to me to be meaty enough that lots of stuff can be spun from it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and uh, Emily Bowie, who's the author of this, has all kinds of options as to how she can take her story, and uh, and they're all really great options. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff here to work with. Yeah. So, uh, that brings me to the editorial mission, which is about crisis questions. <laughs> Which is not really, it's it's kind of a no-brainer to make the editorial <laughs> mission about crisis questions. So what I want you to do this week is review a scene from your story and ask yourself, does the point of view character face a decision after coming to a point of no return? And does that decision come down to a dilemma between a best bad choice or a choice between irreconcilable good choices, essentially, or choice, choice, (laughs) forget that echo, but basically two good things or two bad things. And if you don't have that, consider how you might revise the scene to bring it to that point so that your character faces a dilemma of that sort. And I do want to say too that when you are, when you're creating these dilemmas and choices that in, you know, within a scene, it doesn't always have to be earth shaking. 
Like it doesn't have to be the point of life and death every time. But you want In fact, to... it shouldn't be life and death every time. Yeah. It shouldn't be because you want because you want um, you know, if you have a piece of music that plays at the one volume from the beginning to the end, it gets a bit tiring. What you want are movements and some quieter parts and some um, more dramatic parts. So it doesn't have to be, you know, superlative every time, but there do have to be consequences. Otherwise, it's not a real crisis. Right, right. So it, yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be, but you want to have that dilemma where the character has to make a choice and where they're, they're missing out. You know, there's some sort of, there's a sort of sacrifice. You can't have both. That's right. Yeah. So just as a reminder, you can go to the website, writership.com slash episodes to find this editorial mission, as well as sign up to have those editorial missions delivered to your inbox every week. And remember, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukral of the Author Marketing Club. Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. HappyBookReviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.HappyBookReviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You could make your book happy with reviews. Okay, and Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the show, but our Patreon crew supports our time and preparation. We have a new reward for the quartermaster's level, the Writership Podcast Book Club, but of course, it's not just any book club. Each month, we'll choose a book from your suggestions and I'll analyze, read it and analyze it the way I would for a story grid diagnostic and then we'll discuss it in a recorded call. So this month we are talking about action stories and I've selected Brothers Ruin by Emma Newman. So for more information about that or other ways to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want to show your support in other ways, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you want to have your five pages reviewed on the podcast, please visit writership.com slash submissions. Finally, uh, if you want to look at past episodes and see what the topics are that we cover and um, and because you're looking for a particular topic, then you can gain access to a spreadsheet with all the past episodes, including genre and topics at writership.com slash index. My thanks to Valerie Francis for joining me today. You're kindly welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for episode 120. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.